Hey guys, if you've been enjoying Nick's comprehensive breakdown on Incan history, I'd encourage you to have a look into my podcast, Anthology of Heroes. In each episode, I'll walk through the life of a hero from a different era of time. Through knife-edge victories, defiant last stands, and epic final speeches, you'll learn about the lives of some of the most fascinating individuals ever to have walked the earth. Just north of the Incan Empire, Tekon Oman, a Mayan prince, heroically led his men against Francisco Pizarro in a tale that's still famous in Guatemala today. On the tiny Mediterranean island of Malta, Grandmaster Vallette held the line with 600 knights against 40,000 Ottoman invaders in what's remembered as the greatest siege of all time. While up in Wales, Owen Glendore threw off the shackles of English oppression, rising up against the tyrannical king and leading the Welsh in the greatest rebellion in the country's history. All these stories and so many more are available right now on the Anthology of Heroes podcast, available on all podcasting platforms as well as Instagram. And now, back to you, Nick. Welcome to A History of the Inca. Episode 43, The Lake of Blood. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Well, after nearly two years of quarantining, social distancing, masking, and vaccines, COVID finally entered our home over the past two weeks. Everyone is fine, and most have fully recovered. Fortunately, the twins didn't get it too bad, neither did our oldest, and because we were vaccinated, my wife and I endured it with relatively mild symptoms. Not to say that it wasn't difficult. Taking care of sick kids while also being sick is exhausting, to say the least. And it isn't like we could call for reinforcements either. So, if this episode comes out late, you now know why. Before we begin, a big shout out to Anthony Ortiz, who has decided to support the show at the Inca level. Thank you very much for listening, Anthony, and for your generous support. And if you would like to support the show monetarily, just go to patreon.com slash Inca podcast and donate at a level that suits you. Of course, there are other ways to support the show. Following the show on Twitter or liking the Facebook page is a great way to stay up to date with the show, as well as view some relevant pictures or videos. Simply doing what you are doing now, listening to the show, is also a fantastic way to support the show. So thank you as well. Now then, last time we saw Akachi, the uncle of Titu Kuziyupanki, fend off at least two attempts to overthrow his nephew, who was slated to assume the fringe. Titu eventually became Wanakapak and survived all would-be pretenders trying to assume control of the empire. However, the Sapa Inca was young and stayed close to Cusco under the watchful eye of his mother, Mama Oklo. But the daughter, wife, and mother of a Sapa Inca would eventually pass on, permitting Huanacapac to tour the empire. He began in Condesuyu before heading south into Koyasuyu. But war broke out in the Quito area. Inca officials were murdered as the local population sought to be rid of the empire. 
Upon hearing the news of the rebellion, Wanakapak returns to Cusco to take care of some business, as a new army is raised for him. He takes a couple of his sons with him on his journey north, Ninan Curiochi and Atahualpa, but several are left behind. Enjoy. Wanakapak began the slow march north after the proper ceremonies were completed in Cuzco. Despite the Kapaknan, the entire army did not leave at once. Remember, the entire army consists of not just soldiers, but porters and camp followers, and numbered in the tens of thousands at least. With the slow march, the Sapa Inca took advantage of visiting much of Chinchisuyu. He was given reverence from the local lords as he passed, and no doubt did what he could to flatter the sentries by dressing like them and taking part in their feasts. When Wanakapak arrived in Vilcas, he stayed in quarters that were built by the order of his father, who, if you remember, was responsible for ordering many of the building projects outside of the Cuzco heartland. But it wasn't all feasts and rest either. Juanacapac did have a responsibility to intervene in local matters, and we are told that he weighed in on at least one boundary dispute between local groups as he approached Cajamarca. While at Cajamarca, Juanacapac sent messengers to the Cachapoyas, who lived further east near the beginning of the Amazon, calling upon them to join him on campaign. It could be assumed that since they were a group that was more familiar and comfortable with jungle warfare, the Cachapoyas would be extremely useful to the Inca campaign in the Quito area. Remember, the Inca were never great at fighting against groups in the jungle. It was a terrain that was quite different than what they were used to. Much to the chagrin of the Sapa Inca, the Cachapoyas refused the call to arms and instead rebelled. They retreated to a stronghold and were able to repel the Inca twice when they attacked. However, the long train of troops that was still marching northward on the Capacnan slowly filled into the Cajamarca area, reinforcing the Inca forces already present. Seeing that their cause was hopeless, the Cachapoyas surrendered. Many were turned into Mitme and were sent to the Cusco area to settle. Meanwhile, loyal Mitme were brought in and settled some of the Cachapoya area to protect the empire's borders with the Amazon. Depending upon the source, we see Huanacapac possibly returning to his estate in Yuque and even touring Koyasuyu again before setting out north once more. Both Bernabe Kobo and Sarmiento de Gamboa make this claim, which doesn't make a lot of sense when there is a major rebellion happening within a large area of the empire. I tend to agree with Rastwarowski, who believes that Wanakapak instead proceeded north to his birthplace, Tumipampa. If you recall, Tumipampa sits just south of the Quito area, but before the Sapa Inca was able to press onwards towards Quito, a message arrived all the way from the Charcas in Koyasuyu. 
It turns out that the Chiriwanas were once again attacking and raiding the area. If you remember to our last episode, they did this once before. A captain by the name of Yaska was sent down to put an end to the attacks, which he succeeded in doing so, after the Chiriwanas were able to make off with some silver. But I didn't tell you this attack just to fill time. No, this attack is significant because amongst the Chiriwanas was a European by the name of Alejo Garcia. Garcia was a Portuguese explorer working for Spain. Landing on the eastern end of the continent, he was able to traverse the terrain with the help of local groups and assisted in the raiding of Inca lands, marking the first Inca-European contact. I'm not going to go into more detail than that. However, if you are interested in learning more about Alejo Garcia's encounter, I invite you to check out the Latin America History Podcast episode all about the explorer's time in South America. I have that particular episode linked in the show notes. After some rest in Tumipampa, Wanakapak marched the army to Quito, and he was able to make it to the city apparently without incident. He settled in quite nicely, and we are told he may have even thought about making it a second capital of the empire. Now, the confederation that was present north of Quito was quite formidable in size, knew the terrain well, and had several fortresses in the area. As was custom, Wanakapak offered the group's peace terms. Submit to the Inca, accept Inti into your religion, adhere to the rules of reciprocity which the Andes abide by, more or less. But the system of reciprocity was not a part of the culture of the groups this far north. It was very much a foreign concept to them, and they refused any such deal. They saw no benefit of joining and agreeing to the terms just given to them. However, if they had agreed to such terms, it is quite possible that nothing would have come of it. You see, on the periphery of the empire, enforcing reciprocity was lackluster. It was difficult to do, and pushing too hard would only incite rebellion. The idea, long term, would be to make the system of reciprocity more acceptable to those on the borders of the empire eventually. But that would take time. It didn't matter, though. The groups of the Confederation weren't having it. We aren't told of Ninan Koyochi leading an army into battle, just at Awalpa. It was the opening battle of the conflict, and from what we know, it was Atahualpa's first time at the head of an army. Atahualpa took 20,000 men north of Quito to an unnamed lake. There he met the Confederation forces, who utterly trounced the young Inca. He returned with what was left of his army to his father, Wanakapak, who lambasted him for retreating. Incensed at the performance of his son on the battlefield, the Sapa Inca sent his generals north to Pasto in present-day Colombia. He had three armies, one from Coyosuyu, one from Condesuyu, and one a mixture of people from across the empire. 
And these three armies were able to give Wanakapak a victory in Pasto. However, the Inca lowered their guard. The Confederation performed a counterattack and dealt heavy casualties. Upon seeing the retreat, Wanakapak decided to lead the armies into battle himself. He boarded his litter and ordered a, quote, cruel war against the inhabitants of the Pastos area, killing many and burning their towns. And this was unusual for the Inca to do. Remember, decimating the landscape would mean less resources that could be extracted from it once the area capitulated. Burning towns was very counterproductive to the long-term administration goals of the Inca. Though the far north now seemed pacified, things were dicier closer to Cusco. The Caranquis and Cayambis were coalescing around the latter's native lands. While heading into battle, Huanacapac was actually thrown from his litter. The fact that he was thrown off his litter is quite embarrassing for the Sapa Inca, but his guards were able to come to his defense and provided a retreat, while the rest of the army suffered significant losses. While the Kayambis and Karankis were grouping up at the edge of the Amazon, the Inca received reinforcements, led by several of his direct relatives. Wanakapak met them in Quito and learned that the Waka of Wanakari itself marched with them. However, Wanakapak ignored the ritual of reciprocity for the arriving reinforcements. No feasts were held for them, encouraging them to fight or for honoring them. Sure, they were in the northern corner of the empire, but after marching all the way from Cusco, that was pretty rude. So without any feast or ritual, the reinforcements and Wanakapak's own relatives began to pack up and head back. Upon hearing this, the Sapa Inca quickly scrambled and sent gifts to them, imploring them to return. Satisfied with the gifts that they were given, the reinforcements joined Wanakapak's army and fought valiantly, forcing the Kayambis and Karankis retreating to a fortress near present-day Ibarra. Ayuki Toma, brother of Wanakapak, was sent by the Sapa Inca to take the fortress. It was a bloody assault, but the Inca forces were able to breach it. However, Ayuki Toma fell during the battle, causing the forces to retreat and allowing the Kayambis to regroup within the fortress once more. A clear example of the poor discipline that plagued the Inca army. Another attack on the fortress was ordered, but it was no use and the Inca retreated. Seeing this, the Kayambis pushed their advantage. They exited the fortress to pursue and cut down the retreating army, but it was a ruse. The Inca had another army in waiting, which quickly rushed in behind the Kayambis when they were far enough away and occupied the fort. Realizing what had happened and with nowhere to run, the Kayambis fled to a nearby lake to hide in the thick reeds along the shore. Ironically, this is the same lake where Atahualpa suffered his defeat 
already years ago. Of course, hiding in the reeds was no use. The Inca forces soon fell upon the Kayambis, and there was no quarter for them. They were cut down to the man, and the blood soon filled the lake, staining it a deep red. And so the lake was named, and still is called to this day, Yawarkocha, the Lake of Blood. The Battle of Yawarkocha was nearly the end of the Confederation. There was just one more group that offered resistance to Inca rule, and its army had eluded the Inca as it had retreated into the jungle. However, its leader, a Sinchi named Pinto, eventually emerged from the Amazon, and when word reached Huanacapac, who was in Tumipampa at the time, he quickly set out north. A final peace was offered, a peace in return for subjugation. To this, Pinto refused, and when the dust settled from the ensuing battle, Pinto was executed. The rebellion was over. Around this time, according to Kobo, Wanakapak had visions of newcomers coming to the shores of the empire. Now, Kobo wrote his history many years after Wanakapak, and it is believed he may have added such things as the idea of visions to further the mystery of the quote-unquote new world. However, Cieza de Leon claims that the Sapa Inca was in fact informed of a mysterious group who had arrived on large floating houses, and that two of these men were left on the shoreline while the houses had sailed away. We are told that Wanakapak wished to see these newcomers, but was saddened when he found out that they were killed by the local group present shortly after their comrades were out of sight. Shame. I'm sure they were friendly folks. All well, the Sapa Inca had other matters to attend to. Boundary markers were erected between Pasto and Quito at the Ancas Mayu River in modern-day Colombia, essentially marking the northernmost extent of the Inca Empire. From here, Wanakapak marched to the coast to capture some towns and extract gold and other riches. But he received a message from the island of Puno, near modern-day Guayaquil. The Inca had previously been invited to Puno by the local Sinchi, who promised tribute and loyalty. However, the Puno inhabitants had slit the ties of the rafts, that the Inca nobles had been riding on as they were being ferried back to the mainland, sending the Inca crashing into the water. There, the Puno massacred the nobles. We aren't given much detail on the punishment Huanacapac extracted from the people of Puno when he and his army arrived. Leon, in his account, only states that it was severe. But it is on the island of Puno that the Sapa Inca hears terrible news. His sister, brother, his uncle, presumably Akachi, the governor of Cusco, and many other relatives were all dead from some sort of illness that was sweeping through Cusco. The Sapa Inca left Puno as soon as he could and marched to Quito likely preparing to head south to Cusco to assess the situation personally. 
But by the time Juana Capac made it to his northern capital, he had developed a fever. <laughs> <laughs> 